Design is everywhere in our lives, perhaps most importantly, in the places where we've just stopped noticing. 99% Invisible is a weekly exploration of the process and power of design and architecture. Host Roman Mars asks questions like, why do we use the bleep sound to cover up inappropriate words on radio and TV? What's with mall culture? And why are houseplants having a moment right now? 99% Invisible will answer all that and more. Follow and listen to 99% Invisible wherever you get your podcasts. I feel like it's the real weight of the moral message often gets put on your shoulders as the playwright. So if you try to write something that's satire, it can be very dangerous because then people, if they don't understand that it's satire, then they think that you mean the opposite. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Daniel Matura talks about creating plays and films in a time of rampant disinformation. We're in an age when people know that something is wrong, and they still will promote it and do it. Hi, I'm Felix Oberholzer-G, and I'm one of the hosts of a podcast called After Hours from TED. Each week, my friends and colleagues from Harvard Business School break down the latest in business and culture. This season, we're talking about quiet quitting, Twitter, innovation in rice farming, and why recycling might be a really bad idea. Stay tuned for our big end-of-the-year awards and predictions for 2023. Two episodes where everything is on the table. Find After Hours wherever you listen to podcasts. Daniel Matura is a writer, actor, playwright, and producer. He had a starring role in the film The Hobbyist, which was featured in more than 100 festivals around the world. His short film, Loyalty, is available on Amazon Prime, and his theatrical work has been produced at Theatre Row, Playwrights Horizons, and the Cherry Lane Theatre, among many others. One of his latest projects is a short sci-fi film titled Launch at Paradise. He joins me today to talk about his multi-hyphenated career and more. Daniel Matura, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Daniel, I understand that in addition to your many talents as an actor and a writer, you also play the oboe. Um, why the oboe? <laughs> well, I uh, I played the piano uh, since I was four. Uh, and I remember apparently I saw it on TV and wanted to play. And I started playing the piano and my feet could barely reach the pedals. But I still played. I remember giving some of my first concerts, which is why I always felt very comfortable in front of people, because I literally grew up doing that. And when I was about 10 years old, I decided that I wanted to play another instrument. And so I went through the entire orchestra and I picked the one that I thought was the most beautiful sounding, Oh, which is also, it happens to be one of the most difficult to play and you have to learn how to make reeds, but I chose it based on the aesthetics purely. Daniel, you were born in Dallas, Texas. Yes. Your mother ran a shelter helping unhomed people get back on their feet. Um, That must have been really emotionally challenging. Oh, incredibly challenging. My mother is a a saint and in person and uh, helped so many uh, families and so many people 
get back on their feet. They also had uh, job training, transitional housing. Uh, so the full process from people that were homeless to actually getting them enabled to have jobs, have homes, uh, take care of their families. These were homeless people with families, if you can imagine. So that just magnifies the whole problem. And most homeless families are mothers with children. How did that influence how you felt about the world and sort of your place in it? Well, you know, it's probably a couple of different things. I mean, I, I it showed me the full range of humanity because, you know, I went to a private prep school. So, you know, that's like one set of people in Dallas. And that was actually, I mean, in some ways for me, it was great to see that. It was good to see uh, the other side and people who didn't have everything, who didn't have, uh, you know, all the resources, uh, like all of my friends in school did, who would have, obviously, you know, when you're in grade school and high school, people complain about certain things. And then, you know, if I was visiting the shelter, you can see that those complaints were uh, actually quite silly compared to other people that didn't even have a home. In many ways, I think for me, and I think about this with writing too, is that you see these people who, you know, quote unquote, don't, who have nothing or are homeless. And there's so many times when you actually see more humanity and more grace and more love and more manners than you do from the people that have everything. That's a lesson in humanity, I, I think. What did your dad do as you were growing up? My dad is a sommelier. Uh, and <laughs> I couldn't find anything about him. So that's so interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he originally had an interest uh, in history. And um, then, you know, as, as life goes on, you get a certain age. Uh, sommelier was a, a different, a second career. Yeah. So I grew up and, and never wanted to drink any wine because, you know, when your parents do it, uh, it's not cool. So <laughs> it was kind of, everything was always offered or try this, try that. It's like, no, I don't want it. I don't want it. So we, is it fair to say that you're the first performer in your family? Well, you know, it's funny. My dad played the accordion, I remember. Uh, and I saw him play that a few times. But definitely on, on the level that I at least tried to, to do it. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I'm probably back, you know, in different family trees. I'm sure there were other actors and things like that, but none that were ever sort of like spoken of or that I that I knew about. I read that you would produce concerts for your family to watch and you memorized all the music and created the costumes. Were they one man shows or did you get the whole family involved? Well, you know, I have an older brother and it's very difficult to direct an older brother. So uh, <laughs> <Yes>. they... <laughs> There were attempts at collaborations, but uh, then they often ended up being uh, one-man shows. And it's amazing because, you know, I feel like that's a story that you hear quite often. But when I was little, I, I didn't, you know, I just, that's a sort of, sort of a natural thing. I was like, okay, you know, you sit over there and then look this way and there's some kind of lighting. Uh, it's just something that, that happens, happens naturally. You started writing and acting in plays in high school. And I read that in the summers between grades, you were watching three to four movies a day. It, it, was it at that point that you thought, I want to make my life in, in performing and in theater and film? I think that I always thought that. I mean, I because, you know, I used to also over the summer, I would just read novel after novel after novel, just one after the other, just big stacks of them. And in a way, I mean, movies are are just like shortened novels. They have this an entire world. They have a language which which they speak. They have characters. So I think I was always just devouring anything and everything, whether it be novels or films or 
television, not so much. I, I never was as much into television, but I was always, always doing that. And I loved, loved the movies. And it's funny because then I ended up uh, in school in the summers, I ended up interning at the Sundance channel. And so I would sit there and I would watch like movie after movie after movie and watch uh, and write these short reviews. So it's kind of like a, like a muscle that I had. I, I love movies. I really do. I, uh, it's really rare that I see a movie and I didn't like something about it. You visited New York City only one time, um, I believe, to see Sweeney Todd before deciding to go to Columbia University. Um, that one visit was all it took? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, it, it, it's interesting you, you put it that way. I actually, we came here and uh, Sweeney Todd was available on TKTS. And so we saw it. It wasn't particularly to see that show. Um, well, that was a good pick, though, right? <laughs> it was. You know, it's a fantastic show. Uh, there's the one with Patti Lapone and Michael Cerveris. And the actors and characters all doubled with musical instruments. So for me, having grown up and having played the piano, seeing uh, the actors on stage also be musicians, uh, it was like a perfect match. As if, it's funny, as if almost that was the reason that I came to New York to see that. Uh, and yeah, absolutely fantastic show. And I think seeing that theatrically, seeing that on Broadway, you know, because I had seen musicals, obviously, but seeing that the actor musician type combination was really eye opening. Because like I said, I, as a musician, you're a performer and you stand up in front of people, but you perform music. Uh, whereas in, as an actor, you you are the instrument and you are the thing which is looked at and and judged. So they seem very similar, but they're, they're different types of performing. So I, I feel like that was, it was a surprisingly formative experience. And that's a great plug for TKTS uh, as well, <laughs> because it, it's a good plug for Broadway because it's also like, try something, see something. You may not know what it is. I mean, my parents knew what Sweeney Todd was, but I had no idea. But how lucky to see Patti Lupone. Oh, absolutely. And to, you know, I, I, I still do. And I grew up, I really loved opera and Sweeney Todd to me is very close to an opera, much more than other musical theater. And, uh, I had always loved musical theater. That was more like opera as in, you know, the Sweeney Todd is drama and has very high stakes. There's not a lot of the sort of song and dance in Sweeney Todd. So I think it especially appealed to me in that way. And also a lot of the novels that I grew up reading, I, I remember I, I would read uh, Charles Dickens and Balzac and the 19th century novels. And Sweeney Todd has that kind of setting, you know, with the meat pies and the everything else. So it was, it was very much aesthetically something that spoke to me. You majored in art history, which surprised me. You only minored in theater in college. Did you have other artistic professional ambitions at that time? You know, I think I, I took art history in school. It was when you do theater, there were the theater clubs and then there was also the major, but they didn't have a major in acting or writing. It was a sort of all around theater major. So I took acting and writing classes uh, and then art history was my major because it sort of gave me this palate cleanser that nonetheless ended up, you think that it's different, but a lot of things end up being the same, uh, you know, in studying artists. And I did a thesis project on Picasso. It was incredibly informative just as an artist when you read how does, does an artist develop their brand? Uh, and so studying that with Picasso and also thinking about film, I mean, in a film, you have thousands and thousands of frames and images. 
but artists would spend several years making one single picture. If you look at the French uh, landscape artists or um, you know anything up to the early 20th century, let's say, they were entire narratives in one image. And how do you tell a story in one image? That makes this sort of certainty about what is the story, who are the characters. So thinking about theater and film, in some ways it's easier than that, than these artists that had to spend several years and only got one one shot and one picture to tell everything. You've said that your focus on studying the classics prepared you well for being a writer. And while the Odyssey may be an ancient text, it's still a great model of storytelling. Why do you think that? I would say because people are still reading it and the Iliad, then it's proved itself in a way. Uh, and that people are, are you know, so it's sort of like as a creator, look at the things that have endured and ask, why have they endured? Those are books, but I suppose they're actually poems. They were actually performed poem songs that were done extemporaneously with different bits that were changed or improvised. So in a sense, like those were live performances. Also, you know, what they say about character is fascinating. I mean, if you look at the Odyssey, and what are the moral alignments of that world? Uh, it's some, I mean, I asked that question because I actually don't know. Um, you know, it's sort of like his this idea of faithfulness and then where he's going and the homecoming. I mean, these are all such fantastic themes. And the Iliad is the same. I mean, the first word of the Iliad in Greek is rage. Uh, and if you think about what makes a great character, right, in that Achilles has this very particular point of view and how far will he take that point of view? Those are really enduring questions. And then, of course, like, you know, they open up uh, historical and cultural questions and all the different people that have tried to say, like, where is the city of Troy and what was Odysseus's journey? And that sort of crosses with, you know, like the history of ancient Greece, which is drama and also democracy and the history of the Mediterranean. So it's something that opens up every other possible door, which I really, I, I really love about it. That's something I think people should strive to do is, is create something that then makes you want to go and look on Wikipedia about this and that and say, oh, when was it made? Oh, and the, who was the ruler at the time? And what about that? Oh, let me learn about the monarchy and then this thing. And just to sort of open up into all of these directions. It almost seems like everything harkens back to, to those original stories. And it reminded me of something that you said about there only being a finite number of stories and that even original works are adaptations. And as a writer, I was wondering if that scared you in any way. It doesn't because I really love style as a writer. Uh, you know, so content is one thing and then style is, is different. And I feel like from what I've seen and how when I watch things, um, you know, I kind of prize a certain style, especially in theater. I like when things are very swift and I like when they're direct. I like the sound of the dialogue, the arc of the sound of the scene, which is why I don't really like to direct things, because in my head, you know, I, I'm going to say, oh, I think it should just sound a certain way. And the argument crests like this and then it falls silent. It's sort of a compositional thing, which doesn't work for actors at all. And so, <laughs> you know, uh, that's a totally different way to speak. But for me, when I write something, I can hear it. And then I sort of just pull it out from what I can hear, especially since I've written a lot of things for particular actors. And so I know how they would say something and what their voice does and what their stature does and how they would drive it a certain way. So for me, 
that's why, you know, it's, well, it's a similar story, but you can tell it in a different way. And then how does it come across? And, and for me, again, it's like the, the sound of it is incredibly important. Well, you've talked about the difference between the criticism or feedback you get from critics or an audience that comes to see something and then tells you what they think about what you've written versus the feedback that you get from actors where you said that criticism speaks for itself. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? I don't really know that there really is such a thing as criticism. I think there's only really commentary. Critics you know, they are writers. And so I think they are also stylists. Uh, and so, you know, oftentimes what they're creating and, you know, come on, if I even, I mean, when I criticize things and I look at them, it's really all about me and my reaction. So to, to assume that someone can actually have a high cultural kind of, uh, arbitration of whether something <laughs> appeals to what we assume is the mass of the average theater goer is totally impossible. So, you know, I think if you read criticism and it's very well written, it's like, well, whatever they saw must have really inspired them to do a good piece of writing. People have so many different kind of hopes and dreams of what they want from a piece of theater. I mean, I think everybody wants it to be interesting because it's often expensive <laughs> and it takes effort to get to a theater. So beyond that, I think it, you know, I wouldn't really put much on it. That's why I say, I think criticism speaks for itself because I, I respect that as its own genre. What about the criticism that's more of a takedown where there seems to be sort of glee in not just criticizing something, but sort of insulting it. Well, I think, again, that speaks to whoever the author of that that piece is. Uh, you know what? I, I just I, it's actually I'm not I, I feel like it, it's very difficult. Like if you have written or someone goes to see a very perfectly written play about divorce and they're going through a divorce, they might be very angry at the play. And if they're a critic, they might just want to take it down. And in some ways, I'd say that actually means it's a really great play. But for them, it was a really bad experience. So I remember when I was very young, someone told me, look, all that matters is that people react to your work. Having them be bored is the worst thing. And then I think there's a sort of a fine line. I mean, I don't think I think you want to startle, surprise and challenge people. Uh, but we're definitely in a phase where you, you have to be and want to be more careful about offending people. So there is that fine line. Uh, although I'm not a comedian, so I feel like that's most difficult for comedians these days to push boundaries because, you know, we're all kind of deciding, you know, new boundaries for ourselves and our, our work. So I think that is tricky. But if you listen and you communicate with people and you've worked hard and you respond to, and that wouldn't be criticism, but feedback, you can adjust if people are upset by things in the wrong way. But, you know, that's that's tough these days. Daniel, you graduated in 2009, and your first play, The Picture of Dorian Gray, was produced the next year. Uh, your adaptation of Oscar Wilde's only published novel was produced by Nomads. What made you choose this particular play to adapt? Well, you know, it's it's more of a novella than a novel, which made the idea of putting it on stage a little bit easier, as opposed to like War and Peace, the play. And also because I just felt that thematically, I mean, it has, you know, it comes out of this tradition. It's like Jekyll, Jekyll and Hyde, 
uh, and what it said about character, what it said about audiences and watching. Uh, there's so much in that book about what it means to be seen and looked at, which is what we're doing when we look at actors on stage. And I guess just from my structured mind, I could see the 90 pages and felt that it was something that was so in some ways, I, I guess from your question, I'm hearing myself say that I was thinking as a producer uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> in it, in, in it coming out that way. Cause I feel like I don't even have to defend the story because it's such a great story. And there are such great characters who wouldn't want to see those characters. And, you know, it's fascinating because so much of Oscar Wilde's biography gets hooked into how people respond to that play which is just amazing to me. I mean, uh, you know, I think it's been what, like a hundred, over a hundred years since he passed away and people are still really obsessed with something that was like a scandal in the London papers back in the day. So I, I, I can't explain that, but, um, it is what it is. Well, the play is about how the young, impressionable, and stunningly beautiful Dorian Gray sells his soul for eternal youth. And I've noticed that the purpose of life or the reason for being is apparent in a number of your works. Is that intentional in in reference to this specific choice? Or was that just the beginning? I don't know. I, I thought that that's what all work was always about. But I never really <laughs> liked philosophy class, so I don't know. You know, I, I remember taking some classes in philosophy, and I just thought that it was, you know, it was way too confusing and it was too dense. I that's a really great question. I think because purpose comes to mind because creating art takes so much effort, and the rewards are mostly non-material rewards. So when I think about making something, it's like, why, why this, why is it important? So it brings you all the way down to the, like, what is the meaning of life? Why is this? Why do I want to do this? Why do I do what I do? You know, uh, I think all those things come out, all those questions come out for artists because of the effort involved. And then because you do something and nobody sees it, or the person who sees it is a quote unquote critic or whatever. So, you know, then you constantly ask these questions and things take such a, long time to develop. And also really good collaborators will ask you those questions. Directors will say, why did you write this? Why does the character do this? Actors will say that. And if you don't have a good reason, then you just look really stupid. Unless you're working at a really high level and you're paying people millions of dollars, you know, they tend to really need a good reason to do it because you're not giving them a great monetary reasons. So they, you know, they tend to try to look for a passionate connection. And if you can't deliver that, then, you know, you should get more money. <laughs> Either way. <laughs> At least if you're not getting paid, it needs to have meaning, I guess, right? Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, that comes across, I think, in, in the, the preparation and then in the performance. I mean, uh, you can really tell if the actors are connected to it, if they mean it, if they believe it. And then audiences will sit back. I mean, I have this experience in the theater when someone on stage actually says the thing to the other person versus the line. I always like, it shocks me, you know, when the person, if the line is, I really hate you. Well, you know, they say the line a lot and then you just, you're okay. That person hate that character hates the other character. But when you hear it and they've said it and they mean it, it sounds a different way. And it's funny how you can go through a whole play and not a single thing because actors can get into a volleyball kind of back and forth rhythm and 
But then when it really lands, it lands and you're like, oh, this is why we do what we do. Because when it lands, it's so good when it lands and it doesn't always or even often land. Your next play was titled Plan B, which was a musical in one act. You wrote the book and lyrics and the music was written by Rebecca Greenstein. Was this the first time you extended your playwriting into musical theater? Yes. And it was uh, not sung through. So, you know, there were scenes and then a song and scenes and then a song. I find it really fascinating as a writer because, you know, they say like, oh, you're writing the book. Uh, but the songs are, are where so much of the expression happens. And so I was just like a fascinating experience for me because I was the book writer. And then I'd listen to the music and I'd be like, oh, we should just do all this. You know, should <laughs> I was like the music. Becky was such an amazing composer. I was so captivated by her music. And I was like, wow, you know, uh, so it, it, it's interesting. I, I feel like sometimes then words can can fall short. But um, yeah, that, that was such a fun experience. And it was very campy and it had a kind of farcical energy to it, which kind of just came out of the time. I, I'm not sure that I would capture or could capture that again, or it's where my mind or soul are at. And so when I think of it, I'm so happy. I, I just like, I, you know, I don't know that I could create that again. It wouldn't be the same or, or, or it, it would be uh, too ironic or, you know, it had a sort of bubbly kind of effervescent quality of youth. And sometimes that's hard to bring back. Well, speaking of youth, these plays, your first plays were, were mounted a year or two years after you graduated college with, with an undergraduate degree. How did you get the plays mounted so quickly? How, how did something like that happen? Oh, you know, just a lot of effort and you just keep pushing. And I don't really know, actually. I, I, <laughs> I just, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I, I kind of like worked on a lot of those and was producing some of those, uh, you know, on my own. And so I, I just uh, keep pushing. I think that comes back to the question of why. And so when you believe in it, you're like, well, this is going to happen. And there's so many reasons why it can't. And uh, you just keep going and going. And when you push, like you meet people that help you and believe in you. Um, that's part of the magic. They don't believe in you. Like, and then you do something. It's like when you're doing something and then you're worried it's not going to happen, but you really want to do it. Then the angels sort of come to, to help. And they always do. Yeah, that's not, I guess if someone was wondering how do, how do they do it, I don't know, I'm not a good uh, teacher of, uh, I just said, uh, you know, believe in yourself and work hard. I think that's all I have to offer because that's all I, I did. Your first big acting role was in 2016 in the short film The Hobbyist, which was written and directed by George Vatistas and shot in Brooklyn in two days. And for our listeners who haven't seen it, can you talk a little bit about what The Hobbyist is about? Well, it's based on a short story by Frederick Brown, which George gave me the short story and it fits on a single sheet of paper. Uh, which is a really great basis for a short film, uh, because again, you know, you're not trying to overstuff something. And it's a very simple concept. And it's a neo-noir kind of thriller. And I, I say that because genre is important. So it's about a man that's decided he wants to try to kill his wife. And there's a twist, obviously, in, in, in what happens and what he imagines. And the film itself is really just a two-character piece. And uh, Robert Smith, actually, who's in that movie, uh, passed away recently, which is really sad. And he is an amazing actor. He has this incredible presence on screen. 
the store was filmed in the Lower East Side, and that's actually the store. So it wasn't a set that was built. And then the basement that he goes into with Robert was actually a basement that was in Brooklyn. It was our producer, David Mayer, who's amazing. It's his uh, parents or grandparents' basement. So we were actually in the basement. It wasn't a set, you know? So it was like the real place. And Robert was incredible. Robert was terrifying and frightening and like so intense and so good. And then I just like sort of just spit out like lines, you know, he was like frightening me and then they, they came out. It was great. That's a good, I say that that's a very positive thing. That's my endorsement of it. I think it, I think it's amazing. I didn't even see myself in it. Also, I had longer hair at the time. Oh yeah. You have really yeah. hair on point in that one. I have to say yeah. good hair, yeah. really good that hair. And actual... I read that it wasn't a wig. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's funny, you know, cause then we would go to screenings and I had, after the film, I cut my hair, it looked kind of like this. And so we'd go to screenings and it was Robert and I standing next to each other. And all these people would come up to Robert and be like, gosh, you were amazing. And then they would look at me and then they'd walk away. <laughs> I said to Robert, I was like, oh, I must have been really bad. And, the, and he's like, no, he's like, nobody recognizes you. Yeah. There are several plot twists that occur in just a few minutes. I mean, this is a short film, which requires a lot of deft acting. And I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about how shorts are constructed to get so much to happen in such a small amount of time. Well, that's a good question. I mean, it's like there, there's some expression about, uh, oh, I wish I could have written something shorter, but I didn't have enough time. Uh, you know, that sense of uh, <laughs> yes. that uh, a poem is harder to write. And I do think that about short films. I mean, you want to be like a poem. You want to make people think, but also feel like it's a complete experience. It's very, very hard to do. Uh, I think what, you know, what I said about the Frederick Brown story being a single page, that's a great place to start. Because sometimes you watch television these days and you feel the opposite. You're like, oh my gosh, this one page has been stretched and stretched and stretched too far. So I think having a source material is great that's very contained, uh, but then it really is an art for a short, like I think it's actually, you know, in some ways it, well, I mean, it's much more expensive, but, you know, making a long film and not cutting anything uh, is sometimes simpler for story. I mean, we had that with Launch at Paradise where it was strange because like we had an 18 minute cut and then there was the scene that I really loved and then we cut that scene, but then somehow the movie actually made more sense without it. And I can never, I, I don't think I'll be able to like explain why that is. It's just something about the flow. Cause I, maybe that scene added information, but it added too much information and made you want 10 more minutes and taking that out then made the 15 feel okay. So it's this thing that you do with editors and uh, composers and you, you hope for the best, I think is the, is all I can say about it. Along with Lauren Chappelle, you wrote and acted in the short film Loyalty in 2018. And I read that you need and demand loyalty. What was the motivation for writing a film about loyalty? Like I said, I'm, I'm very interested in words. And uh, I don't know if you remember, but that year, that word was batted around a lot. Uh, actually, the quote that you read was uh, told to someone who worked for the FBI <laughs> I, I, yes. I just hate uh, saying names and endorsing. I, I, I so, get you. I hear so, you. So we I, know. I, and the absurdity of that, which it's not really absurd because it's all of our lives and it is the government and it's what we live in. But the absurdity of, of this kind of concept, uh, and it, it got me again thinking about farce. And then also, like, you know, talking about these like plot twists. And I was like, well, if we can do, 
you know, if you do one plot twist, it's like interesting, a second one, more interesting, a third one. And then you're like the fourth one, the fifth one. And it, it gets to a point, I feel like it's something that David Mamet does really well in his plays where it twists and turns so many times that then you, you lose the through line because it's trying to tell you that it's not quite about that. And then you get to the place of absurdity. It's sort of like if you do a mantra and you repeat it over and over again, the point is to make your brain think no more uh, from the repetition. So I think a lot of us felt that idea of absurdity that went on towards a kind of madness. I think of like the playwright Luigi Pirandello, who kind of wrote things like that, or even like something like Noises Off. That was the idea. And Lauren Schaffel, who uh, was in that film, uh, worked with her in so many different things. And she's amazing. And, uh, it, you know, it was just, it was a lot of fun to do. And it was a real actor piece. The cinematography is mostly close-ups. And so, you know, when you work with someone a lot, you can kind of, get all of the minute reactions and it's about the faces and, and, and all of that. So, yeah. Yeah. One thing I was really struck by when watching the film was how everybody was both believable and yet unbelievable at the same time. And the title sort of sets you up for assessing even before anything happens, you know, if it's called loyalty then who's being disloyal, who's being loyal, and that keeps keeps switching. <laughs> yeah. And and so, you know, the acting, it really is something that makes you so aware of the acting because you're trying to decide who you can believe and who you can't believe based on somebody's acting. Right. And and that was something that I really enjoyed about the film. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, and they're acting for each other because they're lying right. to each other. Right. And I think that, you know, Lauren, Lauren is such a great actor because you know, in that she has this very human moment where, you know, my character is saying, oh, and, you know, she told me this and she doesn't want to get married. And then she kind of breaks the thing. And she's like, wait, you said you didn't want, like, you know what I mean? Then it's this human kind of moment that she has of like panic and they're out of the whole. And that's what I love about Lauren is she does that so well. Yeah. And all of that happens in her eyes, by the way, it's all in her eyes, all of it. Yeah. That's why we love with the close-ups. And I was like, you know, it's like, it's so much fun to do that. And then if you, you know, watch it and then our, our composer for that, actually, you know, he watched it and he's like, oh, he's like, I really want to write a string trio for this because it's, he, and I was like, yeah, you know, that's exactly what it is. That's what he wrote. Uh, his name is, uh, his name is Ricky Schweitzer. And the music is like another character in the film. Absolutely. Without a doubt. You've said that so much of creativity happens extemporaneously, or it just happens on the spot. Did that happen on the set of loyalty? Was there sort of ad libbing or additional sort of construction that was happening while it was being filmed? Uh, I think that the the reactions sometimes get ad lib. The script is pretty close to what what we filmed, but I mean things like Lauren, like in her eyes, the reactions, the hesitations, the look, the you know that's the stuff that organically comes out. Uh, I think you know other scripts could be that one was just so tight because like it had to sort of meet you know the the plot points. So I've had other things where it's been a little bit more extemporaneous, but um, I feel like that had to be pretty close. You have a surprising scene after the end credits, and I don't want to give any spoilers away because this is a short film that I think everybody should see. So I just wanted to ask you what motivated you to add that little sort of surprise at the end. Too many Marvel movies? No, (laughs) Uh, Never enough Marvel. I love the Marvel movies. I love (laughs) it. I love it. Exactly because because of that, because it's like this little like, 
you know, it's always a little something extra at the end. It's great that you said that because that's really why I thought of doing that. Cause I, I love the Marvel movies and I was like, what can we do for this? It's like, Oh, one more twist, just pack one more in there. And there's also this part of me that, uh, loves that because it makes people sit through the credits to see like, you know, the composer, all the people that contribute. Uh, that's one of my like little pet peeves of like, you know, when people walk in, it's like, no, that's a really important part of the film, you know? And so I kind of like doing that. Cause then it's like, you're like, Oh, there's something at the end you have to wait. And then you, you wait through it. And it's not that long. You've stated that there's an aspect of complicity with the theater and authorship and ownership. And in a play, there's almost always talk about who wrote it. Whereas in a film, there's not as much talk about the screenwriters. Mm -hmm. It's usually more the directors or the actors. Do you feel like you have to own the words more in theater? Oh, you have to own the words and you have to own the meaning. I feel like I go to the theater and like I told you before, I really like the style of the dialogue. Like when there's words that get repeated later, you know, and really crafting it so that like some character will use a certain word and then someone else uses that word and the rhythm of the dialogue and the lines. And I don't feel like people ever actually talk about that when they see theater. You know, they're very obsessed with the characters and the meaning of the play. So I, I wish that words would have more value. And there's some really great playwrights that are great stylists. And I feel like, you know, like Bo Willimon is a great example and who wrote like House of Cards. And it's like, you know, people get really hung up on the, I mean, and it's great drama too. But, uh, you know, I, I wish there would be more talk of style. You just think back to like Tennessee Williams and how beautiful his lines were. And then I think because there's not as much talk about it, then I see plays and I'm like, well, these are really good characters. I was like, but this isn't very well written. Like it's, you know, it's clunky. But yeah, I think in the theater, it's the, I feel like it's the real weight of the moral message often gets put on your shoulders as the playwright. So if you try to write something that's satire, it can be very dangerous because then people, if they don't understand that it's satire, then they think that you mean the opposite. And I think even more so in the theater, that's just the way it is. That's just how theater is. People sit there. You're really not allowed to get up during the show and go to the bathroom you, you, you know, eat popcorn, you know, it's like all these things in the theater you don't have in, in film. So it is this communal experience, but you know, that's all part of it. I think just get a thicker skin too. <laughs> well, it's interesting because people are eating more in the theaters. And I think that's one of the things that Patty Lapone is so appalled by, as was I, I just recently saw into the woods and, and there were people with crinkly candy wrappers next to me, people eating pretzels, I mean, this is a theater, and and I think that that there should be a level of decorum that's different from from being in in a movie theater. Well, and, and a respect though for the person on stage that is singing, that warmed up, that is their voice, that is making sure they're in good health and at the energy to do the song and into the woods the way that is so you know what I mean. So you see the performers and the energy that they give to it. So you're absolutely right. I mean, that should be respected because a human being is sitting just a few feet away from you and is not getting paid that much money and is working really hard to do something. I mean, Into the Woods is a fantastic, fantastic show. But you see in that, that actors do a lot of work. Oh, the physicality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and to sing. And everybody knows those songs. So, you know, they have to sing those songs. Correct. Everybody in the audience has like seen, you know what I mean? So it's like, a, it's not easy. 
Let's talk about your latest short science fiction film, Launch at Paradise. You wrote, produced, and starred in this film, and you also filmed it during the worst of the pandemic. Um, what was that all like for you to have all of those dual roles as well as filming it during a really challenging time? Well, after almost a year of not doing anything, I think I had the energy to take on the stress of that. And also, you know, that was the time of the pandemic where people, you know, everybody was tested. So you'd show up and you take your mask off and everybody was tested. Uh, and there's all these people that I hadn't seen in so long. So there was a kind of relief of being in a room with human beings and doing something fun and knowing that we were safe after so much time. So I was like, you know, looking back on it, I was like, I can't believe I even hesitated to do that. You know, it was like so nice to be with everybody. But at the same time, I do, and I kind of like this, uh, I feel like, especially um, in some of the scenes that take place in a, in a basement, and there's two characters that have a very kind of like mysterious relationship, so much of that was made possible because of the pandemic, because we had spent time away from other human bodies. And I feel like there's a sense of alienation and a, you know, kind of, what is it? And how do I look at people? And we were wearing masks. And I love that about the film. And that's something that we could never have engineered because it was in everybody. You know, it's like people showed up on set and they had just been with their spouse or partner, you know, and 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 not other people. And our first day on set, I mean, there, there were probably like 30 or 40 people there. So for a lot of us, it was it I think it was just like a lot of a lot of fun. In the movie, a powerful organization offers some agents eternal life in exchange for their brain matter, recognizing the best content of their minds to create a superior intelligence that can bring an end to war and conflict. And they're terrified to learn that they sacrifice their individuality in order to achieve this. And you ask some questions in the promotion of the film that I'd like to ask you. You ask, if creating a unified perspective for all humankind can spell the end of violence, conflict, and discrimination, is it worth killing individual thought? So I pose that question to you. This is a great question because humans are given or are born with, have dignity, they have intellect, they have all of these things they can achieve. And they have free will. But as you know, like people have the free will also to make the wrong choices. Uh, and so, you know, it's one of these things that you wonder, and especially when we're in an age when people embrace disinformation. So it's one thing to be confused or just not know. And even to not know and not have the time or care to find out. But we're in an age when people know that something is wrong and they still will promote it and do it. So that's why I asked that question because I, you know, have always like philosophically, and I think a lot of us do, we think about free speech and free will and the potentiality of the human being. But when someone has decided to use that potential in a way that harms society, I mean, this is the whole argument for why we have jails. You know, when you break the bonds of human trust, you're removed from society until you can be brought back in. So this is the sort of idea of the limits of free speech and free thought, especially when we're, we're in an age when thought can be so easily translated into speech. You know, when someone can just type on Twitter with their thumbs and then two seconds later, the whole world is talking about it. So I thought it was at least worth 
posing that question, if you actually are going to ask me the question, I would always probably err on the side of still allowing the free speech. But I am tempted by the idea of what what would happen if we ended in individual thought. And I also, you know, just from this concept of however you, you want to look at God or what angels are, all emotion comes out of a partial view. So any being that has infinite intellect that can see all sides of something wouldn't have emotion. They wouldn't be frustrated. They wouldn't be angry. They wouldn't feel lost because they could see the whole picture. And I am someone who believes in an ultimate truth. So if you could see the whole picture, then there is only one picture to see. So individual thought in a way like is a kind of a, a paradox because there, there aren't really different thoughts. There is one. We just are all blocked from, from what it is by our own choice. Well, it's interesting because it, the movie really does make, make you think, makes you think about what do we sacrifice for the best in humankind. But one thing that I don't think the film ever specifies very intentionally is what that one thought is or what is required what are the thoughts required to end violence and conflict and discrimination if nobody is discriminated are we all equal if there isn't conflict are we living conflict free and what does that look like and what that looks like is still very much open to interpretation and and that's something that i think you very intentionally leave the viewer to ponder Oh, well, well, thank you. I, I, that was part of the idea. Cause I, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect. And so I don't have the answer. And, you know, I think that's why the Elsa character, she, she has this line, she says, you know, um, we would all just blow our own brains out if there was no more game to play. And she's talking from the realm of sort of like spy craft, but you know, the sense of like, if we did achieve that, then we would all be bored. But again, you know, if we achieve that as human beings, we, we create conflict. That's what we do. And that's, that's what drama is. And it's learning to live with that, which is what we have to do. Although I do think that we've all been through a period where we've had a little bit too much of the drama, more than we were meant to be able to handle. So that's kind of where it comes from. And also, you know, as much as there's like this philosophy I also do. I mean, I really love like James Bond movies. So in posing these questions, I also was as interested in this idea of the organization and humans taking it over. And uh, Elsa's character is like sort of the spy character and just sort of the kind of Hollywood just uh, drama of that, of that if you did have this device, that it would actually be the, you know, like a villain character that would that would take it over. So I think in, in some ways it was like posing these questions. And then I was like, oh, but you also want it to be a good movie, you know? And so what does it take to kind of appeal to, to some of those aspects. And, and I, I have all of those aspects. And um, so I, I think that that comes across. Do you think that the brain needs to be fundamentally changed in order to end conflict? I think that perspective just needs to be widened. I don't think it needs to be widened to the infinite view, which can't happen anyways. But um, I, I think that we all need to just have multiple paradigm shifts. It's kind of like we were talking about with loyalty. It's like everyone just gets spun around so much that then they forget what it was that they hated and what who they were mad at and what they thought was the, all this stuff. You know, I, I think that in some ways it's like a, a shakeup is, is, is needed uh, just so we can appreciate, I mean, appreciate the value of, of, of metaphor and see ourselves in other people that don't look like us and, and that, you know, 
that we're all telling each other's stories. Um, I just wish it wasn't so like black and white. Like I said, I like satire. I like metaphors. And I feel like people have really reduced it to this like one-to-one correspondence. So that's what I, I think I, I would like is if you, you know, could expand the brain in that way. Like, with, you know, like I said, with, with perspective, but I, I'm, I'm very much a conservative in that way though. I, I think perspective education, I don't like, I'm not into like the whole thing of like psychedelics or anything like that. I don't think it's uh, um, but you know, that's just me to each his own. Another theme of the film is the all-encompassing power of technology. And you stated that the power of technology to multiply our options and enable actions, both good and bad, that we could not accomplish under our own capabilities puts our morality under greater and greater pressure. Do you think that technology is tempting us to forsake our own morality? I think it tempts us to not even know that we're forsaking it. Um, like mm. I said, it, it's like the example of, you know, the, the thumbs on Twitter and then everyone sees it. It's like, it's allowing you to speak to so many people in a way that your mind can't even envision what it means to speak to that many people, but you're able to do it. I think that's kind of the scary part is that you you can run past your own morality without knowing it. You know, if you think about like Paradise Lost and John Milton, I mean, there's a Satan is sort of the main character, the protagonist. I mean, there is something very like sort of dramatic about choosing and giving, you know, this like the choice. But I think what's scary is that people don't even know that they're choosing, you know, and it's this kind of, I mean, that gets you back to the idea of the matrix is like that people don't even know that they're not in the real world. Mm -hmm. I mean, that I think is the most frightening. And I would say I would be most frightened for, you know, the, the kids that send 10,000 text messages a day and, you know, all of that. I mean, I, I grew up and I remember like dial up internet, you know, and I remember not having, internet. I remember not. <laughs> oh yeah. I remember checking email like once a week. Uh, so I think I still have some preservation of some kind of brain. I, I, I don't know. Or maybe the kids that are teenagers are actually going to be like super geniuses and we'll be able to see through atoms and then they'll be way smarter than, than us. You know, I don't know, but I just think it's, it's dangerous because the technology is exponential and we haven't gotten, as humans, we haven't gotten very far past, like, you know, the like letter writing stage emotionally. So I think that the mm. speed and the way that we're able to talk to so many people, like, w- we don't even know what that means. And we're just doing it over and over again. Well, I think if if I'm correct, that the whole notion of how we use technology is the centerpiece of a project that you're working on, a film titled Birthright. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, you know, that's exactly, that's quite literally about uh, Twitter. And it's, uh, you know, quite literally about political speech on Twitter and what a Twitter influencer could do uh, or any influencer online. Uh, Because I think that's something else that hasn't quite sunk in is just how powerful that kind of speech is. And you have news organizations taking information from people on Twitter that are verified, but you know who knows if it's actually that person. You don't even know how your thought is being driven and what it's being driven by. I think politically, that is especially frightening because those are real choices that are that are being made. I mean, those are choices that are being made if you think about, and it's beyond like taxes, it's you know, with judges, with rights, with life, with marriage, with benefits for seniors of, you know, basically whether they live or, you know, it's like actual life and death decisions that are being made. 
And the people that are making them, I would argue many of them don't even understand like the machine under which they're making those decisions. And, you know, we only have what, 435 representatives and there's a hundred senators. There's only like five or so hundred people that make all these decisions with, and with technology. Yeah, for 350 million people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not that many people that, you know, that are making these larger decisions and, and they're doing so with like facts and figures and points of view that are just wildly askew. So that's kind of the basis of the movie. Although really it's a character piece and, um, you know, the the Twitter influencer is actually in love with the guy who's running for the, so it's a very human element at the same time. And it's the human element that actually um, gives it a sort of happy ending because uh, I think that humanity can then cut through the technology and person to person level. You know, it's just sort of this basic thing of where you can try to get something done and all these phone calls happen. And then you're like, you know what, I'm just going to go in and ask for the appointment. And you go in and two human beings And then suddenly it's just so easy and so clear. So that's kind of my viewpoint for like an antidote to technology. Cause like, I still believe in the off switch and the plug, Mm. you can pull the plug and then we're all back talking to each other and taking a walk in the park and there's trees and sunshine and, you know, you left your phone at home. (laughs) When and where will you be debuting the film? Uh, well, so we're still working so in the pre-production stage right now, as far as like getting people attached and getting the ball rolling on that. I have another play that I'm, that I'm working on. So, you know, these it takes a while with the process and I've been enjoying like also with the screenings for Launch of Paradise and kind of seeing people's reactions to it and being in audiences and, and watching it has been really cool. I think that you were referring to the play, The Martingale. And, and is yes. that the play that you're working on next? So yeah, that's the yes. last thing I want to talk to you about. I understand yeah. it's a single act dramatic thriller. Uh, it's going to have the directorial debut of Zainab Ja, who co-starred with you in Launch in Paradise. Yeah. So do you have any sense of when and where we might be able to see that? Yes, yeah, we're working on that too. We've had uh, two readings of that, um, looking for, for theater for that now. It's funny, it's a lot of what we've been talking about, like single act thriller. I mean, it's also, it has a political basis, but it's it's my other kind of historical basis. It's set at the US embassy in Paris. And the lead is a guy who's been a newly appointed ambassador. And most of the entirety of the play is him being held at gunpoint by an assassin. I mean, it's a whole issue of colonialism or neo-colonialism uh, and, and how that intersects with race. Um, I was very interested in taking a story and, you know, having Americans and move them to Paris and then taking in this concept of like, what is this colonial legacy, both of the U S like, and of course, like, you know, France. Uh, and it's interesting cause you know, it's, there's like a party going on for July 14th is the setting and it's in the ambassador's office. And all of those things really exist in Paris. They do have parties there. They have costume parties, you know, there is the office. Uh, so I was really interested in doing something like that. And, um, thinking back to drama is like, well, two people in a room, and this has like three people, uh, what keeps people in a room for all that time? And, you know, sometimes I see stuff on Broadway and there's like 50 scene changes and they make the actors move the set in between. And uh, I said, just, just one, one scene, you know, what is it? What is the thing that keeps these people? And um, the, the roles in it were written for the actors that that have read it. So it was exciting. Actually, the, well, the lead role was originally written for Zainab and then she approached me about directing it. So 
yes, yeah, so it was really interesting to uh, kind of work with these people and then also kind of bring out, you know, even elements of like what I would consider like the, the psyche of the actors and the characters that I know they can play uh, and, and kind of just going for it. It's like really like a, you know, there's big monologues and, and that kind of thing. I was excited by. I can't wait to see it. Daniel, thank you so much for making so many things that matter. You're one of the most exciting new voices in the theatrical world. And I want to thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you for all the questions, too. I, I, I feel like you, you really um, made me understand my own through line better. So that would thank you so much. You can see more about all of Daniel's work at djdlproductions.com. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyman.